This is SciBite, episode 114, for January 7th, 2014. Welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris and joining us every week is our excellent host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So what are we going to talk about in our first episode of 2014? Today, we're going to take a look at my top science stories and events of 2013, Check some curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Oh, kind of like a Heather's Choice. I'm looking forward to it. So let's kick it off with the news. Where do we start tonight? In a completely unbiased and completely online choice, Curiosity Rover and all of its evidence of ancient habitable water locations. Oh, yeah, for sure, right? Yeah, well, not, I mean, it wasn't just me, like all, uh, pretty much all of the the websites that I was looking out for their ideas of, you know, top science 2013 had curiosity. A number of them had them at the top, at at the top five at the very least. But the whole mission of curiosity, you know, it landed last year. That was so awesome. It was definitely on my list of, I think it was my number two from last year. And so they landed there and the whole goal was to see, can we find habitable you know, places where there could have been life, you know, livable water. And yes, within months it had that. It continued to have it. It saw, you know, in January it had some calcium-rich deposits that look pretty much just like they do here on Earth. And yeah. in March there was some more places that they saw minerals that are pleasant in lake beds. You know, and later in the year they had, you know, saw the scoops of soil they analyzed were actually several percent water by weight, which means there is at least a decent amount of water in the soil now. You know, and they'd seen that, you know, there had been ancient lakes that it could have been a couple of feet deep, you know, possibly covered in a thin sheet of ice, but for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, over the course of time that there's there was a lot of water there that had all the right chemical ingredients. It mm. had, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't just it was, you know, one of the things that they called it was, you know, tap water. It was drinking water. If you if it had been there, then you know, yeah, it would have been a little iron, iron rich water. Hmm. But you know, it was there. It has been. It was just continually every once in a while, just like, hey, we found new. Hey, we found new, and it got to one point where you're like, okay, so this whole area is water. We know that. Where where's the excitement coming now? And it's kind of sad because you're like, okay, I need to step up. I guess so. Although if you see, it feels like that first step is one giant leap. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but that first one step giant is giant roll of a wheel for <laughs> Rover Kind. Oh, nice, Heather. Nice. You see, you got so where fine. I was going. <laughs> uh, and it makes you think like the first thing it does when I heard this story was immediately like images of a more primitive Mars, maybe covered in water or with beautiful lakes pop into mind and like picturing like maybe Mars with a little bit of greenery on it looks a little closer to earth. Cause yeah. you know, it just, it stirs all kinds of images. Well, we've seen, you know, these orbital images where we say this really looks like, you know, this crater had water in it and it broke off here and, you know, 
came out to alluvial fan and, you know, we could see like, this is what we think on earth. It would be like a river here. And, you know, this is all sorts of, you know, water locations and thinking like, this looks like what this happened, this happened. Right. Like on earth, we'd say that, but now we've been there. We, you know, we've scooped up the dirt. We've analyzed it right there on the surface. And we're like, yes, this area is what we think it was. And we're just kind of analyzing it as we go along and, you know, it's a much wider area. You know, we right where they landed, they're like, hooray, there's some here. And the kit just kept trucking and trucking and trucking, and they still find it. Yeah, that was I mean, the other thing, isn't it? Is it really was a validation of the location they picked to land. It really sort of oh, yeah. was the, the garden spot. Oh, yeah. It was just, it was great. And they're heading towards the, you know, the mountain in the middle of this crater. And so they're going to be able to see as they climb up that, that's kind of a, you know, a geological time time scale you know their own little uh time capsule in a sense we yeah. go back and look at different stages you look, yeah look back at different stages and yeah. time periods and mars's history mm-hmm. and so i mean it's been such a success and they've been so forward with this that they're actually kind of i think i mentioned it a few episodes ago where they're going all right well now we're going to kind of tweak the systems as we can and look to see if we can actually see you know the chemicals that are there for you know, that microbial life would need. Mm-hmm. Not just a place that, you know, they could go and live. Hey, that's a great, that's mm-hmm. a great vacation place, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But let's look and see if there's evidence that all the little pieces were there to, for it to live. So they're kind of retweaking down to see, all right, well, we've definitely had the big check mark of everything. So now let's see how far we can go with this. And uh, over, uh, uh, really over the entire 2013, this was a, uh, an interesting story. Uh, I think one of the first episodes we talked about it, or maybe not the first, but one of the episodes we definitely talked about it was Cybite 78. That's January 22nd of 2013. And then again in 86, which was in March, 104 in October. And then, of course, in December, there was episode 112. And, and there was coverage in between there, too. It's been a really, oh, yeah. it's been a really interesting arc of this little rover's journey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just pulled out a handful of the episodes where it was the significant, hey, we found water or, hey, we found, you know, some major events. Right. I mean, I mean we have the Curiosity News. It's pretty much something happens almost every week that I can speak to. Yeah. But those were just a handful of episodes that it was really big habitable water one of those things that reminds you it is really 2014 we ha- we have oh my gosh. you know we have all these kinds of awesome things going on yep and it's still been it's still going to be a great source of uh, good info all right heather well, any other thoughts on that one no just keep uh rolling along keep, oh, oh just keep on okay. rolling. all right okay okay nice all right well uh I want to take just a quick little pause right here. Uh, I got a I got a book pick. This I actually didn't pick this up in 2013, but uh, this is one of my favorite books. I might have got this in 2013. It would have been really early in 2013. It's called Area 51, an uncensored history of America's top military secret base, base, base. Now, when you hear that title, you're probably thinking, oh, it's about aliens or something. Um, but it actually is not. Uh, it is written and narrated by Annie Jacobson. And uh, she did something that is just so rare these days. She did some really deep dive investigations for this book. Uh, Annie Jacobson had exclusive access to 20 men who served on the base uh, proudly. And she also had unprecedented access to 55 additional military and intelligence personnel, scientists, pilots, and engineers, 32 of which who lived there and worked there for extended periods of time. She goes into uh, some of the Cold War uh, underpinnings and roots of Area 51, 
uh, like the spy planes. All of the amazing amount of work they had to do when the Soviets got satellites and were trying to fly over Area 51 and monitor them. Uh, it's such a great book. I'll, I'll play a little sample of it. We'll see what we get here. The United States. To understand how black projects began and how they continue to function today, one must start with the creation of the atomic bomb. The men who ran the Manhattan Project wrote the rules about black operations. The atomic bomb was the mother of all black projects, and it is the parent from which all black operations have sprung. Building the bomb was the single most expensive engineering project in the history of the United States. It began in 1942, and by the time the bomb was tested inside the White Sands Proving Ground in the New Mexico High Desert on July 16, 1945, the bomb's price tag, adjusted for inflation, was $28 billion. There's so much great info in this book. I remember reading this book and thinking, this is a genuine historical education. And because of these interviews and these documents that she had access to, this book literally has information that had never been published before. Um, and, you know, you might be able to find it find it in bits and pieces online now just because it may, might have worked its way out. But having one consecutive authoritative place to get it all was really a super compelling read. So it's called Area 51, An Uncensored History of America's Top Secret Military Base. We'll have a link uh, towards the top of the SciBite show notes. If you grab that link and you're not yet an Audible member, you can get this book for free. Plus, we'll also get an affiliate uh, revenue from that. And if you uh, decide to cancel your Audible membership, you can still keep that book and play it at your leisure. So it's a pretty good deal if you're not an Audible member. And if you are an Audible member and you got a, you got a credit burning a hole in your account, go spend it on that book. It is fantastic. Fantastic. I really recommend it. In fact, after talking about it a little bit, I kind of want to read it again. kind of want to. It's it's definitely in the reread category or I guess re-listen category. All right, Heather. Well, with those notes done, you know what that means? It's time for the news bite. I said it's time for the. Come on, fellas. This this is the problem when, you know, you have have, like. This is a mighty hangover from New Year's party, guys. It's budget cutbacks, you know. Oh. All right. I said it's time for the news bite. There we go. Okay, you see? They're into it now, Heather. It just takes a little reminder. All right, so what are we talking about in the news bite? All right, the next big science thing that I wanted to talk about was Voyager 1, the entering interstellar space announcement. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, well, this is again one of those things where it's, have they announced it? I don't know. Are they telling the truth? Have they announced it? Uh, uh, well, it was one of those things where it's, like, perception was that, there was like an announcement every once in a while that said, we have actually entered interstellar space. But I was actually in September that NASA gave the official, hey, yes, we actually have data from previous year that says we entered a new region of the edge of the solar system where all the readings were changing fairly rapidly. There is overwhelming evidence that it has crossed into what they call a heliopause. Now, It's just like another layer out there. Now, one thing that they didn't see was a magnetic field direction change. But there's, they expected that to happen, but they haven't seen it happen. Mm. But again, this is one of those things where, what do you call interstellar? Mm -hmm. Now, if you go all the way out to, you know, the, the Oort cloud, which is where all the little baby possible comets could live. Now, this collection of of a, of a sphere of all these little things. 
it is a long, 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 long way out. Hundreds of maybe a thousand. I don't know. Billions and billions of miles. Yes. How was that for my Carl Sagan? Was that okay? Was that? Right? That was pretty good. Okay. That was pretty good. All right. But we're not entering that. We're not. So it's <laughs> all about quote. In I put it in quotations. Interstellar space. But yeah, we've definitely hit a major barrier. We've crossed a major threshold there. What's, what's and that in itself was just pretty amazing. And it's the result, the the collective work of gener of a generation worth of scientists who started oh, yeah. on this project and have been there, uh, or there are some of them are still there. And then here we are getting to report on it now, like as the as breaking the fruits of that labor. It's so awesome. Oh uh, yeah. And and it's it's only a, it's only achievable because we made that investment so long ago. Oh yeah. And it's one of those long tail things that you know back then there probably was some that didn't ever think we'd see the results of that, but here we are enjoying it. Yeah. That was a huge story. Well, there was also, speaking of a way out there, uh, exoplanets were making a big splash in 2013. Oh, yeah. There were all sorts of different things. I have clumped a number of things together for the exoplanets. It was you know, looking at, you know, years of the Kepler data, they started saying, well, how common are these? You know, and they were decided that, hey, actually analysis says that 22% of stars like ours have potentially habitable Earth-sized planets. Wow. Now, they may not be rocky, they may not have liquid water, but there is the possibility of a planet about our size that could have all the stuff. And at 22% of stars like ours, that was a pretty impressive number for us. Mm -hmm. Just the amount of exoplanets that we're really looking at, wow, how many are out there? You know, and not only be able to see that, but we have, we're able to take a picture of some clouds between the Kepler and the Spitzer Space Telescope. They're able to create this sort of a cloud map. I uh, was looked at that back in October, Sci-Fi 105, and it was, you know, there was this data where they weren't able to actually see. They're like, hey, there's a bright spot. Now, is that shining off a cloud or right. is that heat? One of the things that was sort of amazing is even from this distance, we found the hints of ammonia and methane and carbon dioxide in the exoplanet's atmospheres. Yeah, we were able to, the planet is passing in front of the star, able to read the sun, the starlight passing through that atmosphere yeah. in order to get that spectrum reading, you know, and to be able to really analyze these. And we're able to analyze them in so much better detail now. That's kind of incredible. And I guess we've also, if I recall, didn't we have, we listened to a star? Yes, that's what they called it. It was, they actually were being able to measure the oscillations of the star's brightness caused by what they called star quakes. Yeah. <laughs> which, which, like, the planet whipping around this star was making this, making it, you know, have these little quakes or shake a little bit. Okay. And they were able to listen to that oscillation in itself to be able to say, Hey, we think there is this size and moving here. And it was just and it was really the smallest one yet to be found from all the Kepler data. And of course, 2013 taught us that as we move out into space, likely if you and I are ever going to get to go anywhere, it's going to be on a private space, uh, I guess, spaceship. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of crazy to call them that. But international and private space travel in 2013. I know that was a popular topic on the show. Oh, yeah. I mean, typically you think, especially here in the continental, continental 
you know, U.S., you think, all right, it's NASA. Yeah. NASA brings us to space. Right. Or maybe the Russians. The Russians, we, we pay them to taxi our, our astronauts up to the space station. Right, right. There were a lot there was a lot of people doing stuff. We had India's uh, Mars orbiter mission, you know, just um, in, we we're talking about it in 109, 107, 111, yeah, you know, know, in October to December, you know, that was their first ever Mars probe. And they had, you know, this idea where like, well, we don't have all the money to go straight, you know, one shot here to Mars. So they did that where they did some slingshotting around the earth, making bigger and bigger elliptical orbits until they could get the speed to shoot off to Mars. So it was, you know, doing it on the, a different budget and different scale saying, hey, but we're still getting there. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, in December, talking about uh, China, China's uh, lunar lander. Right. You know, they were actually able to, you know, land a probe. They had the little U-2, U-2, I don't know how to properly pronounce it, the rover. It rolled out. You know, it's taking some pictures. I believe it's in uh, its little lunar nighttime now. It was last time I checked on it, it was either entering or it was preparing for its two week deep freeze. Okay. So we'll see what happens to that on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. We had, um, uh, don't we hear a lot of talk about SpaceX, but Bigelow Aeroscience actually. They had talked about it a long time ago, back in last January, where it was inflatable space station modules. Oh, right. Cybite 77. Yes, where they were, you know, talking about these and NASA had actually awarded them contracts to make them these things. So, you know, it's still NASA, but it's them going out and saying, hey, you guys have a great idea. Can we, you know, we'd like to purchase this from you. So it's really farming it out to the the private industry. And of course you have, you know, the SpaceX and everybody making trips up to the space station, delivering all the cargo. And in, uh, you know, on December 3rd, they had the geostationary orbit, which meant they was a much higher orbit and a different type of situation where it offers them the chance to launch large commercial satellites. Mm. So they can really get up there and actually start competing against Europe and Russia to haul these really big telecommunication satellites into orbit. So it's really about branching out into all these different, you know, private and kind of branching out all across the globe about reaching out into space and doing these things. It's interesting too. Like uh, uh, I'm looking at the uh, the geostationary orbit story. That was December third, right? Yeah. So, uh, and uh, the uh, the Bigelow uh, aerospace uh, stuff was January 11th. So it really spans the whole year. Of oh yeah, it was 2013. Was really the year private space really took off. <laughs> Get oh yeah, <laughs> there we go. Look oh, at that. I like that. Uh, yeah. All right, Heather. Any other thoughts on that stuff? No, I don't think so. All right, well then, band, come back in here because we're going to move on to the two-byte news. All right, Heather, what are we talking about in the two-byte news? All right, got a couple of science events from last year that I saw. Talked about exoplanet searching, and unfortunately, that leads us to recall the poor Kepler Space Telescope. Oh, yes. Yep. It, back in January of last year, it started having some what they call their reaction wheel problems. They have, you know, four wheels that had help, had to keep it precisely pointed towards this group of stars to watch, you know, for the for the dimming of this the starlight. One crashed out in 2012, so it had to have three in order to keep the proper pointing precision that they needed. Mm-hmm. And so a second one started causing problems. You know, back in January, they're able to kind of rest it, 
And then it got back to work. It kind of started giving them problems again in May. And then by the time August rolled around, they're like, yeah, it looks like it's not coming back up. So they ended its primary mission. They officially gave an end to the primary mission statement. Still have years of data, data worth. Yeah. To go back through the catalog. And they're actually sort of going forward with what they're calling K2 Second Light, which is now Kepler doesn't orbit Earth. It orbits the sun in kind of an like in an Earth location ish. So it it's trailing mm. us. Okay. So what they're able to do is and when the sun is pouring out, you know, it's pouring out all this uh photons and things causes it allows some pressure and so they're able they're going to be able to do is sort of angle the the telescope just right so that that pressure can offer them sort of a crutch to make up for a third wheel that's amazing so it's you know it wasn't it's not as good and i think they're only at i don't recall the exact percentage of how close they're getting but they're able to kind of get that point that's incredible. You know, get, get to a little bit further and see, like, well, how good can we get? Mm -hmm. That's so smart, so ingenious. Now, yeah. you remember that big story, uh, and it really, uh, what the thing that really sticks out at me is all those dash cams that the Russians had in their cars yes. of, this, of the meteor just coming down through the sky. That was a heck of a story. Yelbylinsk meteorite down in Russia. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. You know, coming down and you had all this crazy stuff going on. And then I remember at the very beginning, they're like, oh, wow, there's this giant hole in the ice. And then we're going, I don't know. Is that just, what is that about? And then we did. We ended up finding a, after quite a bit of a searching, they found a the huge chunk of that meteorite down in the bottom of that lake. You know, and it's, it was all things as you went along. And it did make it so much more exciting because you had, so many different video views right. of all those dash cams. And it was such a brilliant, like, burning across the sky kind of thing, oh, too. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. It's one of those things where I'm like, wow, if I'd been driving and I saw that bright a light and saw something streaking across the sky, what would I have done? Yeah, I think here in the U.S. we'd think it was a, a terrorist attack. <laughs> there were some people who thought that. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it looks like a missile almost going. And the other yeah. thing that you were, yeah, you have to remember about that is it wasn't like there was advanced warning, right? No, there's not really advanced warning when it comes to these things. Yeah, so it was just all of a sudden, boom, meteor crash. Uh, uh, such a great one. And uh, so everything Heather's talking about today, she has lots of links in the show notes, uh, pre previous episodes we talked about, all that kind of stuff, including the visuals of the meteorite coming down across the road and the brilliant just lights up the whole road because uh, of those dash cams. And then you see it streak off into the distance. It's pretty it's pretty uh, compelling stuff. There's uh, oh, this video is great because it has a whole collection of it, too. And it just yeah. wow, the whole area as it comes through just lights up. Wow, it looks exactly like a missile. <laughs> I wonder what it sounded like. It, I don't remember anything I would talk about it. Yeah. The, that particular amount, but I remember there are some videos of where it's at certain points where it blew out windows. Yes. And one actually where it blew out the back bay door. Right, right. Of, a, uh, of one of those. And it's like, hey, I have one of those. And <laughs> I have one of those at my work. Those doors aren't skimpy. Right. Yeah. It puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Uh, very interesting stuff. All right, Heather. Well, any other thoughts on those events? No, just kind of looking forward to what we got this year. Well, while we're talking about stuff rocketing through space, why don't uh, we do a little curiosity update? Are you ready? 
I'm ready. And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Okay, Heather. So uh, what's Curiosity up to? All right. Start of the show at the top. Curiosity, yep. Still trucking on and doing stuff. We have had a third upgrade to the software now, okay. which is now the switching over to the new software took about a week just because you want to very carefully switch things over in such a way that it's not a one-way trip. Yeah, it's hard to do a tech support call on Mars. Yeah, hard to do a hard reboot. Yeah. There's no person. Yeah. The the time scale for having someone go out there and hold the power button is a few years. That'd yet. be a heck of a, a support contract, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll go there and push the button for you. <laughs> but uh, so now we've got some upcoming activity. They were able to p- take a picture of one of the wheels. Mm. Now, because of the problems with the other rovers getting stuck in the, you know, the soft sand, you know, you saw those, you know, grips on the wheels. And you're yeah. like, oh, it's going to leave, you know, dots and dashes in the sand below it. But actually, the terrain has been kind of rough on it. And the wheels are actually showing a bit of wear. Oh. So they've kind of stopped, paused. They're kind of really analyzing how the wheels are looking. Now, it's not scary levels, but it's much more than they would have expected at this point. So now they're kind of reanalyzing, you know, retweaking the driving software and their choices about how to lay out to ch- pick as smooth a patches as as possible to keep driving on. So it kind of main, you know, they can kind of save the wheels as long as they can. Yeah, that's that's uh, that is that is a little interesting element because it's gone pretty smooth. There's been a couple of hiccups. I didn't even think about the wheels. It's- yeah, I know. Yeah, I, it was one of those things where I'm like, hey, I just noticed that there's not a lot of, you know, sand or anything for it to get caught up in. But I saw that story and I was like, oh, yeah, I suppose that the wheels can get beat up, too. Yeah. If there's driving over lots of rocks. Thankfully, uh, I don't have any wheels on the time machine. You want to jump in? You ready to go? Let's go. All right, here we go. OK. Nice and smooth because it hovers the whole. Oh yeah, see that? That's nice. And a nice when it, when we take these short trips, it's just a nice gentle touchdown because this week we're just yeah. going 59 years back to January 11th, 1954. Heather, what happened this week in science? We had the first UK TV weather broadcast. Huh. We had InVision weather forecaster from BBC's Lime Grove Studios, hand-drawn weather charts pinned to an easel. Wow. But looking at the weather here in the in the, in the uh, winter vortex, the, as we call it, I believe. Yes, the, yeah. the polar vortex of cold. That's right. Yeah, the polar vortex. It, right, yeah. it, I just kind of saw this and I'm like, weather broadcasts warns you that horrible temperatures are coming your way and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it except bundle more up. I'm amazed. I'm actually kind of impressed. It was, I mean, not only to say it like this, but 59 years ago doesn't seem like that long. It seems like we were getting, they would have had weather broadcasts before then, but uh, I can only imagine like setting something up like that, the visual spectacle of it. They needed to have maps. They needed to have diagrams. It was probably a big uh, chore to bite off at first. For the Oh, little, yeah. You know, but it years. was really it, the fact that it was like hand-drawn that's charts awesome. and you had it on an easel. I kind of like that. Awesome. Yeah. I was like, you have, nowadays you have all the weather people kind of pointing and, you know, so the, green the camera, yeah. green screen camera yeah. kind of picks <laughs> up and draws where they're pointing. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. 
back in their day, they actually had to have a pen to scribble. They actually had to draw. <laughs> All right, Heather, well, let me recalibrate the side by 2000 so we can look up into the sky this week. All righty, this week, stay warm if you're out late at night. Mm. But on Friday, January the 10th, around nightfall, to the left of the moon, you might be able to see the Pleiades star cluster. Ooh. It's uh, and about by eight or nine, it'll be above the moon. Now, it's a number of, I think it's seven stars all grouped together. Now, you'll, if you have really good eyes, you'll probably only see six. But if you have really good eyes and it's really dark, you might be able to see the seven. But they kind of just look like a almost a fuzzball of stars. And that was interesting because uh, at one point they used to uh, decide archers based upon that. They're like, how many stars do you see? It was the eye chart of, of ancient Rome. That is so interesting. And it does almost look a little fuzzy to me. Like a, like it's yeah. a little bit of a group of stars are slightly out of focus. Yep. Even with my glasses, they are too. On Saturday, January the 11th at dusk, over by the moon, just below it, you'll be see a, the orange giant star Aldebaran, which is the eye of the constellation of Taurus. But and it'll be to the left of the moon by about 11. But... That came up because it won't be Mars. It is just an orange giant star, Aldebaran, on Saturday. In general this week, Venus is hiding in the glare of the sun this week. It's mm. fairly close to the sun. It's within a couple degrees. Um, I don't really suggest anyone try to go view it. I saw some places they were going, hey, you know, this is a try to view this. I'm like, no, let's, too cold. let's not. It's too cold. Well, it's too close to the sun. Oh, that too. You know, if you're trying to take a telescope out there, why not? Don't don't take your chances. Yeah. And look too close to the sun at all. Yeah. So Mars around midnight. It's gonna be highest in the south just before the first light of dawn. Hey-oh. And with it, you've got Spica to its lower left. Jupiter this week. It rises at sunset. It'll be highest in the sky about midnight. In the evening, it is gonna be the brightest object in the sky. Nice. Actually on January the Fifth, it is in opposition. Well, what we we just passed opposition, which means it's directly opposite the sun from our perspective, which is why it's rising at sunset. You know, all night long, it's going to be up there to be seen. That's awesome. And Saturn is going to be over there at dawn in the southeast, way to the far lower left of Mars and Spica. All right, that is uh, that is actually some good stuff. I'm looking forward to seeing if I can ice buy some Jupiter action. That'll be yeah. great, especially when it's nice and bright. So <clears throat> this week's episode, lots of really great links. And uh, if you're a new listener to SciBite and you kind of want a crash course on some of the highlights over 2013, uh, a lot of the stuff that we briefly covered in this episode is covered in greater detail, and those individual episodes are linked all throughout the show notes, usually multiple times. You can have yourself a, a, a great series of shows if you just go through the show notes and grab those episodes, put them on your uh, podcast player, and just kind of get through, through those. You'll get some of the science highlights of 2013, so that'd be a great resource. Heather, thanks for compiling all this stuff. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. All right, well, is there anything else we need to cover before we get out of here this week? Don't think so. All right, very good. Well, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com and click the contact link. You can also follow Heather on Twitter. She's JB underscore Mars underscore base. Heather, thanks for the great show. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning to this week's episode of SciBite. We'll see you right back here next week. Bye.